Today I have with me the president of the International Health Facility Diversion Association, also known as IHFDA, Marcia Stanton, and the executive director of IHFDA, John Berkey. Welcome, Marcia and John. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. The background of each of you lends to a different perspective. So let's start there. Marcia, give us an overview of your professional background. Well, I'm a nurse by training and spent a number of years in smaller hospitals in and around Salt Lake City, Utah. And um, in 1997, well, in 1986, we, uh, my anesthesiology department came to me and said, let's start a pain program. I had no idea what a pain program was, and I'm not sure they did either, but it sounded good at the time. So we started with an acute service which really managed all of the IBPCAs and epidurals within the hospitals. Um, at, shortly after that, people began to notice that we were having better outcomes with our recovering patients and things like that. So they allowed us to start treating the more chronic diseases. Subsequent to that, they also allowed us to start taking care of the palliation in many cases. So we ran the gambit from one end to the other. I was the national president of the American Society for Pain Management Nursing a number of years ago, and so have stayed very active in that area. When I joined the pharmaceutical industry in 1998, I very quickly ran into John Berkey, who became a dear friend and we have, through the luxury of what monies I had in my education um, benefit, let's just say that, um, some of the companies have allowed me to do programs that John and I have felt were probably some of the best we've ever done in our lives. We worked with the recovering high schools for kids who had been really down and out and in the gutters and now we're finishing their high school diplomas and doing things like that. So, you know, Terry, we've run the entire gamut. Um, and my background primarily was in the pain area. But with John, I've learned very quickly working with he and Kim New and other professionals in the area that this is a two-sided problem not just one side. And I had very well dedicated myself to the one side, but now I'm quickly becoming entrenched in both sides of the issue. Yeah, that's great. I didn't realize what your, I knew you had a, a large background in pain management, but it sounds like you guys were ahead of your time back in the eighties at that facility. That's, that's fantastic. Doing a lot of good stuff. Yeah. I think so. I think we really, I don't know that we were the, uh, the ones that set the trend, but I'd like to believe that that in many cases could be the issue. And yeah. I know that John and I, um, through our varied backgrounds, have been able to solve mm -hmm. some of the problems that other people haven't been able to. Yeah, yeah, and your work, I'd like to hear more on that at some point, your work with the high schoolers, that's that's a really neat thing. And with the pain management affecting patient outcomes, I mean, that's really what it's all about, right? We get a little caught up in the, you know, oh, decrease the opioid use, but really we have to remember that it's the outcomes that we're going for. So can we use less and get better outcomes? And, you know, it's a win-win when it comes to the inpatient side, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah. And I'll let John speak, but you know, the thing that he and I have really and truly struggled with over the last few years is, is of course, the CDC guidelines and all the rest of them that have come out. And now people are so fearful of giving mm -hmm. what's appropriate as medications right. without right. really thinking about what they're doing to their patients. Right. Very true. Very true. All right. Well, John, we have uh, spoken before. I've interviewed before. You've shared your background, a little bit of your background and how IHFDA got started. So listeners, you can go back and listen to that if you want all those details. But do give us an overview of what your background is, because it's very different from Marsha's. Yeah, I want to tell you that Marsha's being modest as usual. She, she was the... Uh, the main hammer with the, the, uh, the high school kids. She found that program and I was just blessed enough to be drug into it. So um, she, she's the consummate education person. And she didn't say that, but I'll say it. So anyway, I, my whole background, almost 50 years is law enforcement. I started out with Cincinnati police. Uh, we, I was in internal affairs. And when you get out of internal affairs, they try and find a job that you like and so this new pharmaceutical diversion job nobody really knew what it was they applied for a grant and got it so we did that and, and instantly i found out that there was a segment of that which had to do with diversion in hospitals and nursing homes and um, so we began to spend quite a bit of time on that. that's how i kind of got started in that world and we ended up as i think i've told you we we ended up arresting a nurse about once a week so um and this was before software I mean, this was when people did things by hand. Uh, so anyway, I got out of that, went into Warren County, and we, we continued with it. And um, IHFDA was a uh, we were uh, we were all involved in Natty, and uh, we uh, Kim New and I decided to spin off, and we were doing the this work for Natty, and decided to we wanted to spin off and have an organization that dealt totally with this topic, and that's what we have with IHFDA. So that was started in 2015, and. We just finished a great conference of which you, Terry, were one of the uh, one of the speakers and did a fabulous job, as you always do. So, um, but that's pretty much me. So I'm retired um, for the most part, probably about 80%. And by the way, having a knee replacement, I can identify with the pain management that, you know, my, my, my uh, orthopedic surgeon was very stingy. Unfortunately, I had a, a, a internal medicine guy who's my family doctor who wasn't. Otherwise, I would have been in a, a fair amount of pain. So... I, I can identify with it personally just recently. So. Interesting. Yes. So, um, and thank you. I, I appreciated the opportunity to present at the conference. Yes. When I, when I saw John, he was in a wheelchair and then said that he had knee surgery. And I jokingly said, well, I hope you don't have your opioids and, and found out that you had, I guess, quite a supply, right. From your internal medicine guy. But I didn't realize that your orthopedic surgeon was, had been stingy. So let's talk about that, if you don't mind, just a little bit. Did he talk to you about opioids and express to you that he wasn't going to give you much? Or did he just give you a small amount? Or how did that process with him work? I'm just curious. The moxycodone initially um, and the five milligrams. And, uh, and that was fine. And, and then what happens is he's part of a very big um, group. And so you, just, you don't deal with him anymore. You deal with... Uh, his nurse or whoever. So they, I want to say they refilled it once and then they, they lowered me down to, I can't remember what, Tramadol. And you might as well be taking aspirin if you're, in my opinion, if you're going to take Tramadol. So 
Uh, and then, no, they really didn't. They just kind of, they have a set thing. It's like you get like one refill or two, whatever it was, and then you're done. I mean, it doesn't really, they don't really talk to you to see, hey, what's your pain level and all that. And, I, you know, you, as you know, you have to be careful with those. But I, And I was, and I've been totally off of them for some time. But uh, without this other physician, uh, I would have been in quite a bit of pain, I think. So there wasn't a whole lot of education then in talking. There, there wasn't a lot of partnering with you. No, they, the, the they, don't know, they don't know what my knowledge level is of all these drugs, you know, so it, I, I was, and I didn't ever told them anything. So they treated me probably like they do every other patient. And Which it's, probably you know, isn't good. No, yeah. it, they have a thing. It's, it's one refill or two refills and you're done. You think somebody mm -hmm. would talk to you and I tried to explain that, but now that's our policy. So anyway. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So we have a long way to go still. <laughs> we do. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. I don't mean to interject, Terry, but you know the the issue is from the education side. We thought we were doing well, and in actuality, we were doing well. Uh, you know, after the the late '90s and up into the early 2000s, we really thought we were taking care of patients optimally, and then we realized that some people were taking it a step farther. Um, I don't think any of the clinicians, and I say that lovingly because I know it includes physicians, nurse practitioners, doctors of nursing practice, doctors of pharmacy, and all the rest of us that are commingled in that whole area. No one was doing it um, out of spite or to create bigger problems in the world. It just is one of those situations where the confluence of all the issues came together at the same time. And yes, we had new medications, and yes, they were way more effective, and, and yes, the patients got the medications. To John's point, he got two prescriptions. Well, if you go back 10 years, probably got 20 prescriptions. And he got prescriptions of 90 or 100 or 120. So we have not only taken a step backwards, unfortunately, but we've taken two or three steps backwards. Yeah, yeah. And I really do think it all comes down to being educated on how the meds work, being educated on when is the right time for them and when is not and being educated on the individual patient uh, parameters, the risks that people are at for a substance abuse disorder. My risk might be higher than somebody else's or vice versa and partnering and having that real discussion to make sure that the needs are met and minimizing the risks, which as we know, I mean, sometimes all it takes is one, right? And now we have a problem. But I think if we have those discussions up front and maybe there would be less of a hesitation to ask for help if you've had those honest discussions with your physician and then you realize, oh my gosh, I'm one of those. I've been exposed and I just, this, I, this is wonderful. I want more, right? And then maybe we could stop it sooner because there wouldn't be that as much of that stigma and hesitation to say, oops, I think I had that high propensity for addiction and now I'm feeling it. Um, you so know, I'll you made a comment a second ago about a relationship. 
The problem is there have not been the relationships that there probably needed to have been. You know, in many cases, it is a prescriber coming in and saying, okay, I'll give you this, and away they go out the door, when in fact there needs to be far more interaction with the patient, not only intellectually or emotionally, but also physically to know that it's the right thing to do at the right time. Right, right, absolutely. Terry, I wanted to tell you, you brought up a great point there. One of the things I tell friends that ask the question that I think is so important is look at your family history. You know, if mom and dad are an alcoholic and a drug drug addicted, you need to be really, really careful about your use of substances. And I don't think people understand that uh, right. so much, that your propensity for addiction could go up incredibly depending on your family background. So, right. But no, right. I, no counseling. Again, remember, these, this guy doesn't know I have any knowledge of anything in the way of drugs, and I got nothing. I got, I got nothing. I didn't yeah. get something to say, take a little bit of food with your oxycodone. I didn't even get that. So nobody told you you might be constipated. (laughs) (laughs) They did. I I knew that, but no, they did not. Yeah, no, but I think you know. I I think it's even worse that I mean, you did have the experience, and so you had the people, you had the background, you had the information. Think about the people that don't have any of that, don't know to ask for any of that. It's not okay if they weren't told any of that because they, they're completely ignorant with the whole thing. Um, and so it's not a great example. And then to just, well, this is our policy. This is what we do. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But I think, too, I mean, I think that's a great message that you're telling people to be aware of family history because I think the more that all of the lay people understand the uh, – propensity for addiction and how it affects us all differently because I know I was baffled by that it's you know I've had it for dental procedures and I don't even understand why people it didn't even work for pain for me so it's like what what do people see in this right so I'm very different than the person who takes it the first time and it's a whole life that looks completely different so the more people understand and then are not afraid to engage in that conversation with a physician. Look, this is my family history. I've never had it. I'm a little afraid. And then again, that open communication. If we could bring that into play, we actually might be able to fix this faster than restricting through CDC guidelines in terms of you can only prescribe this much and that's it. That's my policy, right? I'm going to give you this and that's it. It's really Physicians before they prescribe controlled substances should probably be asking their patient, what's your family history? I mean, it would be a typical thing to ask. And they say, well, you know, I've got, do you have any history of drug abuse or alcohol abuse? And, and that could make, you know, it could add another warning to the, to the taking of them. Well, anyway. And just remember that it isn't just physicians. It's the whole ball of wax. Anybody who has a prescription pad can write. Yes. So yes. we have to, you know, we have to really understand that whether you be a physician or you be, well, in particular with physicians, if they're oncologists, perhaps they think very differently than a family mm-hmm. physician does, or than someone who's in internal medicine or someone who's doing an orthopedic procedure. So it's, it's not only the simple fact of educating people, it's educating them in their wheelhouse and what yeah. is it they really need 
And would one term mean something different than another term? And do we need to be so cognizant of words that we embellish some points and diminish others? So I, I, I was part of um, the REMS program that the FDA put out a number of years ago. And I actually was uh, the chair of the education group. And did we, in fact, do really, really good education? Yes, we did. Um, and it was a combination of pharmaceutical companies and the FDA and the NIH and the HHS and SAMHSA. Everyone came together. So it was a very robust program. The problem is we were only allowed to charge or count one interaction. It takes more than one interaction to do this education and do it correctly which is why John and I have tried on numerous occasions to do multiple programs in the same area. I Terry, I don't want to get you off track, but I got to, got to tell no, you about this. Yeah. a lot of these talks. I had a group of doctors in Milwaukee and I just got done with my talk, which, you know, talked about drug abuse and all that. And this is a female physician stood up who was an oncologist and said to the group, I never prescribe a schedule two pain relief. And I thought to myself, thank God I don't have cancer and thank God <laughs> my oncologist, you know, I mean, to say that is just, that just, and she was proud of it. And she was proud of it. She's yeah. She was proud of it because she's not contributing, but at the same time, exactly. if ever there was a reason to <laughs> bust out the C2s. Yeah. yeah. That could be for those oncology patients. Interesting. Yeah, it is different. And you're right, Marsha, the, the education, we all learn differently. We hear some things, forget others. We have to hear it two and three times to, to finally get the message home. Um, but this whole topic right here would be an interesting perspective for speakers for next year for IHFDA if you, know, you have people that have some sort of a program in place, prescribers that have a program in place that do this and um, can walk us through if they've seen better outcomes personalizing it be kind of interesting so on that note how do you with ihfda fabulous fabulous group everybody that is not familiar with it many of you listening probably are very familiar with it but um you know my goal is to capture those that aren't familiar with it and get them to your website to check it out and then to your conferences to really learn that's where i learned a lot of my stuff when i first got into the world of, of diversion, mitigation, and monitoring. But what kind of work and effort, what's your philosophy behind picking speakers and topics that and speak to those of us with more experience, but also engage and not go over the heads of those, not overwhelm those that are new into the space? Do you have any kind of thing John, that the board discusses in that area? Absolutely. John, do you want to take it or do you want me to? Well, let me start it off and then you okay. can, because Marsha is the head of our education committee. We, we have, we've been very fortunate, Terry. What we've done is we kind of opened it up for call for presentations. And that has brought in, like uh, last year, I knew we had far more uh, people applying than we had room for and some very good stuff. So, uh, and Marsha leads that group along with Heidi uh, McNeely and we have the committee. And so we go through them and, and, and it's not always easy, you know, it, uh, people get selected that 
it's really they're they're really the cream of the crop because we really had uh, we really have some great stuff that's that's submitted to us, and and I think that's that's worked really well. That doesn't mean we don't reach out if we see somebody else or we think of a topic that maybe nobody covered. Um, but I'll let Marcia go on. She's she's the nuts and bolts of this uh, this part. Well, you're fine, but. You know, Terry, that's one of the reasons that we decided to initiate the fundamentals course this year, the one-day program to give people just a real taste of the various areas that they are going to be dealing with if they choose to come into this specialty or this therapeutic category, if you will. And so the eight-hour program gave them a nice flavor for what they would get through the rest of the conference. We hope to continue to do that on an ongoing basis because we're, on the one hand, where we know we have some of the real experts who are the folks that are doing this on a daily basis, we also know that there are going to be people that are placed in a position to start doing it and really have no idea how or what to do. And those are the people we'd like to really bring into the fold and help them understand that Number one, we're a friendly group. We don't, we don't really have cliques and we don't really have people that are uncomfortable speaking to the newbies. We'd like to keep it an open group that really enjoys being together, sharing ideas and sharing their philosophies and their protocols. And as we grow, um, I think John can attest to the fact that we are becoming more sophisticated as an organization. You know, we just got our feet wet a few years ago, and here we are now having a three-day conference with seven posters for um, research that people are doing. We hope to do more of that. So I think, you know, when you say what's the philosophy, the philosophy is to grow but to not grow faster than what we should grow and to make sure that we're servicing and encouraging all of the different factions within the organization, whether it be those who are brand new or those who have 20 or 30 years in the business. So, yeah. Go ahead, John. Well, I was discussed at our corporate meeting. We have the, the corporate sponsors. We have a breakfast for them. And one of the things that came out of that was, you know, do we consider maybe a, a uh, more than one track at a time? In other words, having something, you know, a lot of places you go, the bigger facilities will have different tracks. And then, then that can be relegated to maybe the more the newbie person or whatever. So those are, those are things I think that may happen down the road. I don't know that we're not ready for it yet, but we're very much uh, – in tune to your question, and that is, how do you handle both? And Marcia did it eloquently. The fundamentals was the first attempt at that, and we're going to keep that. We're going to—I think—we're going to tweak it in Chicago in, in May uh, or March, whenever it is. But we're going to—we um, want to keep it current, and and so that when somebody goes in there, you know, they're not looking at something that was five years old even. So uh, hopefully that will help them. I don't know if you remember if you were there, but we did a kind of a beginner's thing on, on one of the conferences. I don't know which one, but we did it in the morning. We did two or three uh, kind of beginner kind of things. But I like this better because I think it, it tends to cover the whole gamut of, of diversion. And so, uh, and you know, people like yourself who are experienced probably wouldn't get much out of it. I wouldn't say much that you didn't already know. But, but when you look at it and 
we didn't do it this year, I don't think, and maybe Marcia can tell me, but usually when we have groups like this and you ask them how many are new, almost half of the pop population in the crowd is new. It's their first one. Now, that doesn't mean they're a newbie, but they probably are, they haven't, uh, they're not as sophisticated as a lot of people in the room. So we have to keep that in mind. So it's a balance yeah. all the time. Good, okay. Good. And yeah. Terry, um, Terry, I think, you know, one of the things that is ultimately important to us as a board of directors, um, particularly now that we have started expanding our board of directors to include folks that may not have been part of the initiative when we began this organization, uh, we would love to have a certification or a credential. We're not there yet, but the plan is at some point to have a national certification if we're able to do so, which would make it certainly more appealing, I think, to people who are um, not only new to the business, but to those who have been doing it for quite a while. Right. Yeah, these are all good things. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you knew how many were new attendees and kind of new to the space. So over half, that's interesting. I, I don't remember that question being asked this year. but And I think the fundamentals class, you're right, that's a great way to give them an overview so that they don't come in completely unprepared and like, what is what are they talking about? And it doesn't feel like it's as much over their head because I think that is the the risk that you take with conferences like this is that those who have more experience, what are they going to get out of it, right, when they come, if there's not much? And I know in the past for me it's been, even if it's something that I've heard and I know, sometimes it'll tickle something like, oh, I haven't looked at that in a while, right? Let me look to see if things have drifted from that. I better go back and, and look at that process. So that does take place, even if you're not learning something brand new. It's a reminder that you maybe should go back and look at something. But um, yeah, I did feel that the, the topics this year were broader and got a little bit deeper for those that um, you know needed some new content. So I thought that part was great. And your fundamentals class, you had a lot of people attending that did have experience, but I think they wanted to see what it was about. But moving forward, probably the, the new people, the newer people. Right. Yeah. The, the, uh, you brought up something about it tickles your uh, – I had that experience with Dr. Talley, who came on our board a couple, three years ago. And, you know, her, she works for the state of Tennessee and, and blood-borne pathogens. And, you know, all the people that we encountered – I just never gave it a thought that each one of these people need to be potentially, if possible, tested for blood-borne pathogens. And she came on and was just like a light bulb went off uh, after all the years I've done this, that we never did that. And so it's really nice having her on the board. It's nice, you know, she presented this year. And, and for people to think about that, that, you know, okay, you got everything settled and, and now you're doing this. Well, what about, you know, we may have... <laughs> We may have 100 patients that have been subjected to hepatitis C or whatever. We don't know. And so anyway, that was that light bulb thing that you were talking about went off when Pam came on board. So. Yeah, yeah, good point. All right, so the other thing that I, I did want to discuss was something that the two of you wanted to share and get out there for all of the listeners to hear, and that is surrounding the fentanyl deaths that we've been seeing um, and hearing about. So go ahead and um, 
what is it that you two kind of realized that the information that may may need to get out there for everybody listening? Well, John and I have had numerous conversations and numerous conversations for years talking about the issue of fentanyl and how the lay public is taking what information they're getting from the media and they're, um, as you would expect they would, they're conveying that into their world. Well, the issue is the FDA-approved fentanyl is not the fentanyl that is causing the real problem on the street. And John can talk more to that. But my concern is, for those of us who are clinicians, we understand that fentanyl, approved by the FDA in its various forms and fashions, is in micrograms. What's coming in from outside of the United States is undoubtedly in milligrams rather than micrograms. And so there's really no reason why when someone has a tainted pill or capsule or whatever the case might be, that they aren't really in danger of overdose and death. And uh, I think that's what both of us have been trying to accomplish and trying to just spread the word as much as we can. You know, we were fortunately asked to be involved in an article just recently during the IHFDA conference where we expounded on that issue, that it's a very different molecule, not necessarily molecule, but a different molecule in the way that is being provided from those folks in Mexico or those folks in China or those folks who are making it in their bathtubs, whatever the case might be. But John has far more experience on that than I do. I just want to tell people, understand the truth, understand it's different, and help us convey that information to the general public. You know, I can remember when I first got this, it's been a few years ago, and I was sitting at the table eating dinner with my wife and a doctor came on the local news to talk about fentanyl abuse and he had a packet of fentanyl patches i mean so not even not even injectable fentanyl he had fentanyl patches and he was talking about the fentanyl problem well what would you know people in the audience think oh my gosh these patches are the source of all so i kind of went ballistic to be honest with you about it in, in my own house and um you know, it is, as Marcia said, it's it's made in China, it's transported to Mexico, and it comes across the border and kills, what, 100,000 people a year, roughly, in our citizens. And and it's, and I've seen recently on the ads, when they'll talk about fentanyl, they'll go to a pharmaceutical package of fentanyl that they'll put on the, on the screen. And, you know, it's just, again, drives me, and I'm sure people like you guys crazy, if that's not the source. I can just about guarantee you that zero fentanyl from diversion uh, in our hospitals and nursing homes go into this problem. This the, as you guys know, the people that divert medication uh, are addicts. They don't share their medication. They don't sell it. They keep, they keep it for their own addiction. And all this is a whole, and as Marcia said, when you think about measuring in micrograms and now getting something in milligrams, um, it's no, no wonder that people, and, and you know, Malincrot is the typical, they, they, they manufacture what looks like a Malincrot uh, a five milligram uh, oxycodone tablet, and it's got quite a bit of fentanyl. And you take it, and if you're not an experienced drug abuser, there's a good chance you're going to die. And um, 
it's really staying. But yeah, I think that the whole message is yeah. it's not pharmaceutical fentanyl, it's clandestine fentanyl made in China coming through Mexico. Yep, good point. Yeah, the those of us in the healthcare space monitoring for diversion, fentanyl is very dangerous for our colleagues and those that are diverting, but completely separate from what we're hearing about on the news and all of those fentanyl deaths. Um, I'll read here, I'll wrap it up by reading something from the United States Code, Title 21, Chapter 13, Drug Abuse Prevention and Control. They state that three factors are driving the opioid aspect of this crisis in particular. The first one is the 1990s, a dramatic rise in opioid pain medication prescriptions. Second, heroin from Mexico has flooded the country. And third, the illicit manufacture of and illegal importation of fentanyl, an extremely deadly synthetic opioid and its analogs and related compounds have been proliferated. Fentanyl is currently manufactured almost exclusively in China and is either shipped into the U.S. or smuggled across the southern border by drug traffickers. Between 2013 and 2016, the amount of fentanyl seized by Customs and Border Protection at the border increased more than 200 times over. Dealers are increasingly lacing fentanyl into other drugs and pressing it into counterfeit opioid pills. Because fentanyl is lethal in even minuscule doses, this is an extremely deadly tactic and it too often causes users to ingest a fatal amount unknowingly, which those of us in the clinical arena know that any amount for somebody that is not opioid tolerant is fatal, right? I mean, can be fatal. So that is in, in Title 21, and it is a different, a different story and really scary. I think um, I read an article recently that a drug counselor in Arizona was quoted as saying, there is no long-term illicit fentanyl users. They all die because it is so dangerous, right? So if ever there was a time to get the message out, just say no, right? We've got those campaigns. This is the time. I mean, what a scary, scary, scary world. I used to worry about my kids, high school, college. No, don't do it. Just say no. But it's even scarier now with all of this illicit fentanyl that is out there making things so extra dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you two very much for spending this time with me. This is some great information, uh, not only about IHFDA, but other things that you're doing and, um, and this message about what is going on out there with all of these deaths. So thank you very much for joining well, me. Thank you, Terry, for inviting us. And, Absolutely. Uh, and those of you that are not familiar with IHFDA, I highly recommend it. Like Marcia said, it is a very open community. There are no clicks. Everyone is willing to share. If you're new, just strike up a conversation with somebody who has more experience and they could probably talk to you for hours on things and give you suggestions. So it really is a great group. Thank you. Thank you, well, yeah. thank you very Bye. much.